Well, I, I just kind of have a, a, a question for you, and this is uh, really where we'll kind of launch off tonight. And that is, very simply, what happens when something that was experienced as sweet and as good is forgotten or no longer remembered? Right now, I'm really digging uh, Sufjan Stevens' new album. It's been years since he's put out, I don't need any more, uh, something that I loved like this. It's a great album. It's about the death of his mother and him grieving it. The album is raw and it's, oh, it's wonderful. It's musically fantastic as well. So I'm literally playing it all the time. But in a month or so, as these things go, I'll probably be tired of it. I also love Torchy's Tacos. My favorite is the Tuk Tuk. It's February's taco of the month. I wait for it every year. Only 292 more days, y'all. I had four of them in one week once. And uh, that was about one a day in the span of six days. By the fourth, I couldn't eat a single bite of it. Something amazing had lost its amazingness. Hey, if you live by the ocean, or if you've ever moved there, how long does it take you for, not, for you not to see it anymore? I mean, I don't mean literally see it, but I mean see it like you did the first time that you were amazed at it. Or, or the mountains. What, what, three months? I don't know. I mean, I... How long does it take before you begin to lose the wonder, right? I think that we're too easily bored. We take things for granted, sweet things. They become vanilla too easily. But I want you to know this, that grace, oh grace, grace can be like that too. The sweetness, the beauty of knowing the welcoming, forgiving heart of God can easily become white bread for us. We've become bored with grace, it seems. And we're not the only ones either, though. You see, you remember that what has happened just before the book of Leviticus comes to us. God, by His grace, had gone public with His grace. He unleashed it to this people as He had rescued them from the oppressive hand of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Had they done anything to deserve that? Heck no. Heck no. It wouldn't be grace if they did. But he knew they would forget. He knew that they would forget about the amazing grace that he had shown them when he delivered them. So he reminds them of who he is and what he has done for his people. And when that grace, his unmerited favor, went stale on their hearts, he would move heaven and earth to remind them that they truly were recipients of his grace all over again. You see, what God did for them what He does tonight, right here in Leviticus chapter 26, He does for you, and He does for me as well, even tonight. You see, when we read it, you probably read, when, you, when we read this, you probably noticed that most of it was about blessings and curses. And that's true, but y'all, there is more. In fact, listen, dripping from every word that we just read is sweet, pure, straight grace. And for us to understand what the text is telling us, we're going to need to see that it's telling us something about the source of grace, about the context of grace, and about the persistence of grace. Those are my three main points tonight. The source, the context, and the persistence of grace. And I, I do believe with all of my heart that God is longing for us to see, even in Leviticus 26, His wonderful, matchless grace for sinners on display tonight. So let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of the source of grace. Namely, where does it come from? Well, 
one of the things that you have to understand is that grace either comes from something that they have done or something that God has done. Either it's something that we earn and therefore deserve, or it is something that we have no claim on and therefore is a gift. Well, what is grace? I think simply it's very, put, it's very well put like this, that it's God's unmerited favor and delight. You remember what Leviticus is all about, right? God has rescued His people. They were trapped. They were slaves. They couldn't get out of Egypt. No matter how hard they tried, they were helpless. And then, then, God shows up. He acts by delivering them. Had they deserved it? Had they done awesome things? No, they hadn't. Then why did God save them? Why did He do it? And here's the answer. He did so out of His own good pleasure. It made Him happy to save people. God saved by His own initiative. And when God saves y'all, it's always, always because He delights to do so. It brings Him joy to rescue. Think about it. If God had actually waited until people were worthy of saving, how many people do you think would actually get saved? Zero. I mean, if perfection, absolute perfection, were the source of grace, if that were the grounds for it, how many would end up with it? The answer? Zilch. Zero. None. Nobody. And this means precisely that only those who ever receive grace are those who, in fact, don't deserve it. Now, you may be thinking, Ryan, how in the world can you get that from this text? And I'm going to show you exactly uh, in just a moment. I want you to see this, that grace is grace exactly because it comes to those who don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor. And you see this precisely in verse 13. Turn your eyes there and read it with me. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. There it is, the action of God rescuing people who need it. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect or upright. Grace always comes not to those who deserve it, but to those who in fact don't. Listen, y'all, hang with me on this. Do you know who's going to be in heaven? A bunch of people who don't deserve to be there. That's the only people that are ever going to end up there. Because grace comes precisely to people who can't do anything for it. And that is wonderful news if you're a screw-up like me. Listen to how one pastor put it. When the church, when, the, when Christianity began to taste afresh the sweetness of God's radical free grace, he actually uses the metaphor of, uh, of spirits. Not like ghost spirits, but like drinking spirits. And this is awesome. Listen to what he says. I figured y'all would like this quote because... I think there might be some alcohol on campus, maybe. Listen. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would make anyone see that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all of those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they even started. Grace 
has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. I love that quote. Because that's what the gospel is. It's pure. It's straight to a group of sinners. And God says, I give it to you full throttle. None of this pull yourself up by the bootstraps garbage. He says that, the writer goes on to say, he says, I love that. Grace has to be drunk straight. Don't you want to know this? To taste this wonderful grace? To know that God saves us to be His people apart from our efforts? I mean, how many of us live underneath the crushing weight of guilt and feel exposed by our shamed lives? Come. Come to Jesus. Come get this straight grace. It's free. What God did in the Exodus, He delivered fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I got news for you. Grace, however sweet it is, does not always go down smoothly. Grace is always bitter and foul before it's sweet. One pastor put it like this, We hate grace. We hate grace? What? Why? Well, I think he's right. Why? Because are you ready? Because it means that grace utterly destroys all the things that we've been trusting in to be acceptable to God's eyes. All the things that we've been working hard at get shattered with grace. Because it doesn't matter anymore. And so therefore what that means is, is that your whole life where you have spent yourself on earning and trying to prove yourself, don't count. And that hurts us. That kicks our teeth in, right? I mean, think about it. You get up to go to class. You do your schoolwork to try to prove yourself. Your whole world is based on merit, on earning. And you can't earn grace. It's free. If you work hard to be the fastest, you make the team. If you work hard enough to get in that college, we get the best grades, guess what? You get to go. If you're the prettiest, hey, the boys will ask you out and vice versa. What? And so grace shows us that a life of earning gets shattered. It always does. Grace is sweet. And then it goes down smooth. But it always kicks us in the teeth before it does. It tells us your whole life of trying to make a name for yourself simply won't work with God. Oh, and that offends us, doesn't it? Grace means we got nothing. 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 But grace also means that Jesus has got it all. Has got it all. And He freely gives it straight with no ice, no water, and no ginger ale. Grace always and is only free. It can't be bought and it can only be given. And once it is, it changes us. Where do we see this? Well, let's take a look particularly at verses 3 and verse 14 as well. Where we see this uh, series of blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings as we look at the context of grace. When you read these verses there, you see um, in these verses this idea of context, what grace comes to us in. What do I mean? Well, God, when He forms a relationship with His people, when He enters into relationship with them, that is known as a covenant. A covenant is a lot like a contract, though there are certainly dissimilars, but it involves two parties, and they agree to certain stipulations. And when those stipulations are met and lived out, blessings come. But when those stipulations are broken and not lived out, curses come. Every covenant from the ancient Near East always had both blessings and curses. And the point here 
in Leviticus 26 is that when God's people obeyed God from the heart, life went well with them. They flourished. Their crops grew. They were protected from their enemies. Walking in God's ways is what brought about life with a capital L. At one point in the Bible, this following in God's ways is likened to a tree that flourishes. How many of y'all have been to the Botanic Gardens in the past couple of days? If you go there now, you know, it's free by the way if you've never been. If you go there now, it is beautiful. Everything is in bloom. The irises are shooting up hundreds of different colors. The roses, the rose gardens are in full bloom. And everything just smells wonderful right now. Everything is in color. It's all flourishing. The garden is full of life. And this is the picture that the Bible gives us of what it looks like for us when we follow in God's ways. Listen, y'all. Obedience, as it's talked about here, isn't about a fickle God in the sky having fun with us, His pawns in the world below. I think sometimes when we hear about the commandments of God, we go, oh, that's just God up there. He's just seeing if we'll obey things or not. Eh, screw Him. I'll do whatever I want. And the Bible's saying, that's not at all what God is doing. He's showing us how life works best. He knows how we best function. But when they chose and when we choose the pattern of continual, willful disobedience, curses were to follow. Now, before you get bent all out of shape, uh, you need to understand what these curses were. The uh, Old Testament professor, Jay Sklar, put it best when he said, When the curses do come, they are not petty acts of anger, but are acts of discipline. Ready? Meant to restore God's people to the life for which they have been created. Now, if you're like me, you're asking yourself, wait a second here, hold, 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 up, hold up just a second. What about all that talk about grace that you just said a second ago? I mean, I thought God didn't relate to us on the basis of our works. And I want to say this, if you're asking that question, you get a gold star because you're paying attention. Okay, here's what I mean. Because it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I don't think that I am, and here's why. Let me explain. God's saving grace to us comes apart to, comes to us. His saving grace comes to us apart from anything that we do. It is free, but once it does, it changes us. Grace not only saves, it always changes us too. It frees us to walk in God's ways. Obedience, therefore, is the fruit of God's grace. Sorry for the cheesy rhyme. Not the root of God's grace. Okay, We don't obey to get God to love us. Rather, we obey precisely because He does. In fact, our obedience is an... Are you ready for this? It is an expression of our love back to God. You see, if we are Christians, we want to follow in God's ways, however much we may stumble along the way, because His matchless grace has already come to us. God's love, y'all, always, always, always draws out love from us. You see, I think you know this from your own experience. You see, if you've ever had somebody, another person, love you, 
No, no, I mean really love you. I'm talking about the self-sacrificial, lay my life down for you sort of love. If you've ever had anybody love you like that, perhaps a spouse, a future spouse, a parent, or a profoundly close friend, then you know deep down that you want to love them back for the way that they've loved you. You just, you intuit that. And instead, you're looking for ways to love them back over against ways to say, hey, thanks for the goods, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That is, that is a spurning an authentic and real love. Jesus Himself says it this way in John chapter 14. He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commands. But let me say this loud and clear. Our obedience never secures God's grace to us. Never. It's not the thing that secures it. But that goodness, um, that goodness, the reason it doesn't is because we're never perfect enough. You see, we obey rather because God has already saved us. And I love this little quip. Listen carefully on it because I think it's perfect. Scotty Smith, a pastor friend of mine, says it this way. He says, grace is opposed to effort. It's not opposed to earning. I mean, sorry. Grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. To live the Christian life takes work. It really, really does. It doesn't merit us anything but we do have to work at it. Well, how do we apply this in our own lives? Y'all, I think it's very important. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, that God's kindness, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's not His anger, you see. It's not Him being ticked at you or pissed off at you that does that. It is His kind, welcoming heart that draws us back. He woos us back to Himself with grace that we might turn from the things that are killing us And turn to Him. You see, in other words, it's not His fist, but His kiss that draws us back. And God, though, isn't afraid to use both tender and tough love, though, to draw us back. That's what these curses are all about. Think about it like this. When my daughter, Evangeline, who is three, the other day she walked outside of our laundry room door, which leads into the garage, and the garage door was up. And from our garage door to to that wall is where the street is. She walks up, I I hear the door go out, she's looking for her mama who's in the front yard, and I don't know that her mama knows that she's coming, and so I run outside and I yell, Evangeline, stop! And within a half a second, that little girl has turned around our van, back into the garage, tears are in her eyes, and, and she's safe and sound. Now listen, listen. When I yelled, when I yelled like that, when I raised my voice, she experienced that as tough love. She saw it as something as daddy was mad at her. Now really, daddy wasn't mad at her because I used my loud voice, why? To bring her back, to care for her, to woo her back, to show her that my loud voice is actually an expression of my love, not I'm angry at her. The book of Hebrews says this, that God disciplines those He loves Discipline, y'all, is a mark of God's kindness to you. Listen to this. Indifference is a mark of non-love. 
You see, you have to see the smile of God, the delight of God behind the difficulties that He may bring in your life. He loves His children too much to let them continue in their ruin. Behind the hard circumstance, His smile and loving kindness stand. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your life is like right now. But God, if you are in Christ, loves you too much to leave you to the ruin that you are making of your life. He will stop you dead in your tracks because He knows that you cannot have happiness and joy apart from Him. Could it be that some of the hardships in your life are actually God's kindness expressing itself. The discipline of God, that which Leviticus talks about, is always, always, always an expression of kindness to God, from God. C.S. Lewis nails it and then we move on. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain, but pain, it insists on being tended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is God rousing you tonight? Is He? What's your life been like? How's it going for you? Is He using hard circumstances to draw you back? May I suggest something to you? It's His kindness to you. It's His goodness. If you're in Christ, He is not mad at you. He loves you. And He's drawing you back. And you say, how can we know that? How in the world can we know that God would actually do that? And that's where we go for our third point. This idea of the persistence of God's grace. Look with me at verses 40 to 45. We'll be through this quite quickly. Think about it. God's people, He says this, that if they are breaking what I have commanded them to do, they're not walking in their ways, they, they have, they have, uh, they're not walking in my ways that I have laid out before them. They're spurning my love for them. They're spurning what I have commanded them to do. I will bring discipline down on them to win them back. And then what? In verse 40 and 45 through 45. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me. And he goes on and he says this. He says, this, I love it. He says, I will not spurn them. Think about that. The persistent grace of God continues to come after you even when you are giving God the bird. Seriously. Even when you're saying, I don't care about what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, God's grace stands ready and He hunts you down in it. Some writer has said that He is the hound of heaven. He never quits. He never fails. He always comes after you. And He does so because He loves you. He is persistent with His grace. And He always, always, always comes after you even if you fail Him. If you remember the book of Hosea, it's the Old Testament prophet's book. It's really amazing. It talks about Israel, God's people, like a wife. Like a God's wife. See, the Bible speaks over and over again about us being the spousal, the spouse, rather, of Jesus. It's interesting in that book that that book talks about how God's people worship and give their hearts to various other things, just like you and me. And he actually, they actually call that whoredom. That it's uh, adultery. And what's amazing about the book of, of Hosea is that God remains present even in the midst of when His woman is sleeping with other men. 
I think that's really profound. Another metaphor to perhaps capture your heart. Luke chapter 15. There's the young son. He runs away. He squanders his wealth, right? He squanders his wealth on reckless living and on prostitutes. He comes to himself. He remembers the grace of his father. And what happens? He comes home. And there off on the distance, as he's making his way back to his home, he sees his father. His father's been looking for him. His father pulls up his, his garments and takes off running after him. The, fun, the son confesses. But do you know what the father says? The father says, before he can do any, get a word out, he's kissing his son's neck. A sign of profound intimacy. A sign of profound, persistent grace to somebody who has squandered the very grace that the Father gave him. <clears throat> Y'all, that is the picture. That is the picture of grace. I love this illustration. Think about it like this. A robber once pulled a man on a name, uh, pulled a knife on a man who owned this store, this little convenience store named Juan Rodriguez. Juan was 55 years old and he had owned the J&L market for 22 years. And an interesting thing happened. This man pulls a knife on him in his store, robs his store, and then as he is making the robber, is making his way down the street, bystanders begin to see it. And the guy runs into an alley and he can't get out. And by this time, Juan has come chasing the man with a baseball bat. But when he finds the man in the back alley, he notices that people are around him having seen this crime committed and they are literally waylaying this robber. And it's interesting, Juan's standing there with the bat. And do you know what he does? He drops the bat and he begins to lay on top of the man who, who, had, just, uh, who had just previously robbed him. And he began to take the blows. Take the blows for the man who had just robbed his store. And when asked about it, Juan says this. I love it. He says, I ran up to him and I used my body to protect him. I had to protect the life of that man. Do you see grace there? Do you see the kindness of God shown forth? Who do you think we are in that story? Yeah, we're the robber. We're the one that has gone in and demanded of God, give me everything or I'll kill you. And then He comes and He covers our body and takes the blows for us. Listen, how might we drive this home? I want to say this tonight. You seniors, y'all have been around uh, for four years now. You've been here as long as I've been here. And it has been a profound pleasure for me to get to walk with you and to tell you week in and week out about the grace of Jesus. I've tried my best over four years to try to point you to Christ and say, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done with your life, no matter how much you've screwed up, the grace of God is free. And it is something that is ever persistent. And so I urge you, as you leave from this place, remember what has been heralded and trumpeted in, in, in uh, RUF since the day you arrived, and that is that God loves sinners. You're going to go somewhere. I don't know what your life is going to be back like. You're going to screw up and you're going to ask yourself this question. Will God welcome me back? And you listen to me right now. Absolutely He will. He gave His Son. 
He crushed His Son for you. You are always welcome home with Him. Always. That is what grace does, y'all. It is that persistent. It comes after us. It's straight. Don't drink it with any ice. Don't put any water in it. And don't put any freaking ginger ale in grace to water it down. It's too good by itself. How in the world can God continually be persistent with His grace to people who break His covenant? How in the world can He do this? Put shortly, if His people deserve cursing, being cut off, how in the world can they be blessed by Him? How, by breaking the covenant, can they get blessed? And it's very simple. Because Jesus, by keeping the covenant, got the curse. You say, what? You see, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, wrote this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Do you see that on the cross... God was leveling the curses spelled out here in Leviticus 26 on Jesus. And by Him keeping the covenant perfectly, you and me get all the blessings. That's what's happening on the cross. Christ was the only one who perfectly kept everything that God had commanded. He was the truly obedient one. But at His death, He became a curse. Well, what does this mean? It means that at one and the same time, He took the curse for our covenant breaking and we get the credit. We get the blessings for His utter faithfulness. Do we deserve it? No. Of course not. It's grace. It's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You for the real pleasure, Lord, of being able to go through this book and to see Your mercies all in it. And now, O Lord, we ask that You would help our hearts to sing about that love that will never let us go. How in the world could it be? Well, I'll tell you how. It's because of Christ. It's because He is the one that took the curse for us. And so now we sing of this great love. And we ask that You would take these things and put them deep into our hearts. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.